Okay, what would you say is the most, uh, what was the most important moment in all of human history? You're asked that question. What is the most important moment there's ever been? The most important moment in all of human history. Where are you going? What are you going to, what are you going to say? How would you answer that question? Well, a recent article put forward a whole host of answers to that question. One proposal was this. It was the invention of the printing press. Okay, that a newfound capacity to distribute reading material. Well, that was the most important moment of all time, the most important moment ever. Okay, that was one answer. Other answers displayed more of a sort of bias towards the modern age, towards the 20th century, 21st century. People were saying things like the fall of the the Berlin Wall or 9-11. These were actually the most important moments of everything, please. Here's what I hope. I hope that every single person in this room tonight, that they see and understand that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, that that was the most important moment that has, there has ever been. That every single detail in those hours is crucial. That uh, upon those moments hang... Uh, the eternity hang the salvation of countless thousands of people. And it's actually to that death that we are going to turn this evening. Okay, now, I say that, but let me just, I suppose, deal with what might be an objection you want to throw at me then. Because you might say, well, Paul's just read Isaiah chapter 53, man. And, and this is a, this is a, this is a, a book that was written, what is it, around 700 years before the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we be looking and considering Calvary from Isaiah chapter 53? Well, let me remind you of what you already know. This is prophecy. That this chapter tells of how God will provide a suffering servant in order to save his people. So these verses, if you've never perhaps even ever encountered them before, and if you've never read them before, these verses, let me tell you, they speak very clearly of one who was going to come, a savior. And what is his name? Jesus of Nazareth. And make sure... You get this as well, I think. Tonight, we are not considering as a congregation so much the nature of Jesus' death. Do you remember that we looked at Isaiah chapter 53 a couple of months ago, three months ago or so, a communion service. Do you remember that if you're here? We looked at this. We looked at the previous section, the previous stanza in Isaiah. Well, in that stanza from verses 4 to 6, we did look at the nature or the sort of death that Jesus died. In that sermon, we looked at the, the fact that his death was a substitutionary death and an atoning death, a penal death. We looked at that, the, the sort of death, the nature of the death. Now, here's the thing. In this section tonight, it's different. In this section of scripture, these verses, do you know what happens? Isaiah comes into the room, he takes us by the hand, and he actually leads us to the event itself. Verse 7, we are taken to the trial. 
And verse 8, we are taken to the death. And verse 9, what happens? We are actually taken to the burial of the suffering servant. So, hear this. Tonight, in here, pay good attention. Why? Because we are going to hear in these verses what Almighty God has to say to you and I about the most important moments that have ever taken place. So, turn with me, if you've not already done so, let's have that stanza. So Isaiah 53, 7 to 9, page 740. Let's have it there in front of us. Because it's not a long section, is it? So we're going to have to pay close attention to the text here. Now, here's the first thing that we must notice and think about, and it is the silence of the servant. The silence of the servant, the suffering servant. Okay, let's, let's, let's go for this. Straight away, what I want to do is draw your attention to the language. So look down at verse 7. Okay, now do you see how this stanza begins? It begins like this. It says that the suffering servant was, you've got two words, the suffering servant was oppressed and afflicted. So let me ask you a question. What do you think that means? Like, what is Isaiah getting at when he, when he, when he says it's oppressed and afflicted? Do you think it's just two ways of kind of describing this kind of attack that's clearly taking place against the suffering servant? Oppressed and afflicted. Is it just two ways of describing an attack? Is it? No. Actually, in the, the original, it's not like that. No, no, no. Instead, what has been said there is that yes, the suffering servant is being set upon in a, in a, a brutal and a violent way here. But what's actually being said there, the sense of it in the original, is that he humbly accepted this attack, this beating. What's actually being said there is that there was no physical retaliation at all from the suffering servant. So you've got that. Then what we need to do is add to it. So keep reading. Please keep reading. Okay? So look look at this. If you read, keep reading verse 7, you get to the core of this stanza. What does it say? He was oppressed and afflicted. Next bit. Yet he did not open his mouth. Now, uh, you see that that is very much the core of this section. The fact that he didn't open his mouth. Like you see that by the fact that actually Isaiah repeats it time and time and time again. Three times that's repeated in that one verse. So do you see what's being said, friends? Not only when he is attacked did the suffering servant not retaliate physically. He did not even object with words. The suffering servant, Isaiah, says he was still, he was quiet he was silent now again here's my hope i'm obviously a hopeful guy tonight but my hope is that every single person here tonight again that you see that that these words in verse 7 are fulfilled completely and perfectly by the lord jesus christ now you see that don't you don't you the silence come on 
I mean, think about it for a moment. What happened with Jesus of Nazareth as he stood before the high priest? Do you remember that incident? Do you remember what's... Ah, let me read it to you. Matthew 26. Now listen to this. Listen. The high priest stood up and he said, Have you no answer to me? And what happened? Jesus remained silent. Or wait a minute. Ah, Come on. We can add to that as well, can we not? What about he's dragged off to where then? He's dragged off to Herod. And what happens before Herod? Luke chapter 23. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. So he questioned Jesus at some length. And what happens? But Jesus gave no answer. You see it? Before the high priest. Before Herod. And you know where I'm going, don't you? Then what happens? Yes. Before Pilate himself. John 19. Pilate entered his headquarters and he said to Jesus, Where are you from, Jesus? And what happens? What happens? Jesus gave him no answer. You see the very, very simple but crucial point here. These verses in Isaiah that that speak of silence in the face of brutality. These verses, these words, utterly fulfilled. Fulfilled in perfection by Jesus of Nazareth. Wait a minute. Is there not a question that we must ask? Why? Have you never asked that question? Like, why was Jesus quiet? I mean, he's done no wrong. Why did he not speak up to the high priest? Why did he not rebuke him more? Why not speak to... I mean, come on. I mean, if it's you or if it's me, we're going to do something different, aren't we? Like, imagine this week the doorbell goes at your house. You open it up and there's the police there. And you are suddenly accused of doing something absolutely atrocious. Something of, of which you have no part... What are you going to do if you're anything like me? You're going to be banging the table. You're going to be screaming. You're going to be shouting about this. You're going to be incessantly declaring your innocence. I had nothing to do with this. What do we hear from our Lord? We hear not one word. Friends, do you see why that was tonight? Do you? It is because the Lord Jesus Christ... Now listen... The Lord Jesus Christ was willingly submitting himself to these events. Willingly submitting himself. I mean, he was silent not because oh, he's speechless by what is happening. He was silent, no, because he knew that every little single detail in this attack, everything that was happening in front of him with the high priest and Herod and Pilate, every part of it was was actually part of this great divine plan. Do you see it? The silence was acceptance. The silence was almost a decision. The silence was our Lord Jesus consent and I think that is amazing I do don't you isn't it amazing but what I really want you to see is just how necessary that silence was for your 
salvation. I'll show you what I mean. Um, let's say tomorrow you're out and about near where you live. And for whatever reason, you're out and about and you, you find yourself in need of some change. Okay, that happens now and again, doesn't it? So you're walking down the street of your house, you need some change, and you, all you've got is a five-pound note. Okay, what are you going to do? Well, you're, you come to the shop, the local shop, so you decide you go in there and you try and get some change. And uh, you speak to the shopkeeper, he's happy to do this. So what you do is you give him the five-pound note, and you're wanting five-pound coins. What does he do? He smiles at you, takes your five-pound note, puts it in the till, and he gives you... One solitary pound coin in return. What are you going to do about that? There's going to be more buying of a table, isn't there? You know, surely you are. Why? Because that's not adequate. I mean, a five pound note has to be exchanged for five pound coins. And don't you see? That's how it had to be at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That what was required for your salvation, it wasn't a transaction. It wasn't just a sacrifice. What was required for your salvation? A full transaction. A a, a full sacrifice. A sacrifice that would deal with your sin in its entirety and its completeness. And I want you to see that for that to happen, listen to me, an unwilling sacrifice would not be enough. Do you understand what I'm saying? An unwilling sacrifice at Calvary that it would never pacify the wrath of God at your sin. Because isn't it true that sometimes when we sin, our will is involved in that? Like actually sometimes when we sin, we choose to sin. It's a horrible thing when you think about it. We actually decide to, to move against God, to choose to, 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 to go against God. Our will is involved. So unless a saviour could be found, whose will was involved? Unless a saviour could be found who could consent to bear our sin, then full atonement could never ever be made. I mean, isn't that part of the reason why the Old Testament sacrificial system, it was just, it wasn't enough. I mean, why wasn't it enough? Well, part of the reason was because those bulls and those goats, well, they didn't choose this. They didn't choose to act in this sacrifice for sin, did they? A commentator called Alec Mateer, he puts it like this. Listen to what he says. He says, the cross is only going to work for us if says this, only a person could substitute for a person. Now we get that, don't we? A person can only substitute for a person. Now listen to what he says. But only a consenting will could act as a substitute for the rebellious will of man. Only a consenting will at Calvary would work to cover our sin. Because of that, don't you just rejoice in what Isaiah chapter 3 is pointing us to? Because what did Christ Jesus do? Not only did he deal with the oppression and the affliction, what else did he do? He remained silent. He said not a word. And so the message tonight is the same as the message this morning. 
If you're a Christian, your salvation is sure. Your salvation is utterly certain because Christ willingly bore your sin. He did it willingly. He said not one word. So we see the silence of the servant. The same thing that we, we see in Isaiah chapter 53 in these verses is the suffering of the servant. The suffering of the servant. So we've seen uh, Jesus at his trial. That's the first scene. I wonder though, if you're following this section closely, do you see what happens as we move forward into the text? So we were at the trial. Well, actually, as we move into verse 8, it's almost like we're actually transported to a new vista, a new scene. We're sort of transported towards Jesus' actual death itself. It's actually like, in verse 8, that we are on the Via Dolorosa. You know that road, the ancient road that sort of wound its way through Jerusalem on its way to Calvary? It's almost like in verse 8, that's where we are. Trials behind us, that's where we are now. And what is it that confronts us on the Via Dolorosa? Do you see? Let me read it to you. Look at verse 8, I'll read it to you. It says now that by oppression and judgment... He was taken away. Do you see what that means? It means that such was the injustice of the trial. Such was the corruption of the trial that this entirely innocent man, he has now been led away, but he has been led away to die. Now, to that injustice, we must add, I think, what seems to be another injustice. And I think we have to be on the ball with this because we've got to wrestle with a really difficult phrase. Believe me when I tell you it's a difficult phrase. I think it'll be familiar to you. It's the second phrase of verse 8. If you have a look. Now it says this. In the NIV it says, And who can speak of his descendants? It's not an easy one, is it? And certainly in the original language, it's a very, very difficult phrase. And you will notice that there's a footnote in the NIV. Always a telltale sign that it's a difficult phrase if there's a footnote. But if you look at the footnote, you'll see that some commentators, they actually think that instead of, and who can speak of his descendants, that the phrase could actually be translated something like, I think about the situation of the cross. They think it could be translated, yet who of the suffering servant's generations, or even better, who of the suffering servant's contemporaries, who of them considered what was happening to him? So do you see the message? If that translation is right, you see what we're seeing, do you? You know, that as the Lord Jesus Christ is forced along the Via Dolorosa and he's carrying the cross and then as he is hoisted up and punctured into the cross, that few in the crowd that day 
recognized him for who he was. That his contemporaries, the reality is that on that day they considered him not. That they, the crowd at Calvary, that they gave the Lord Jesus Christ very little thought at all. It was almost insignificant to them. So it could mean that. But actually, <laughs> I think that the NIV, the, the, the version that you've got there, the church Bible, I think it, I, I think it's nearer the, the truth. Especially, here's a test for you, especially when you think of this, what is the expression, who can speak of his descendants, especially when you remember that in Acts chapter 7, that was the verse, this was the section that the Ethiopian what was he? A, a eunuch who can speak of his descendants. He was a eunuch. Yes? And especially when you view that phrase in light of the themes of the book of Isaiah. What do I mean by that? Well, in the book of Isaiah, if a person was able to bear a child and have children, it was a sign of great blessing from God. And time and time again in the book of Isaiah childlessness especially for a man it was a sign of a person having had the blessing of God removed from them and so now do you see what's being said of the suffering servant of the Lord Jesus Christ what's the expression who can speak of his descendants at the cross do you see to the injustice of the earthly courts seems to be added an injustice from the heavenly courts do you see it this man at the cross is dying and dying without lineage he hangs there before these people and he hangs there bearing the very curse of almighty god and so i've got to stop and i've got to ask you this See, when you think about the earthly injustice and the seeming heavenly injustice, aren't you appalled? Aren't you? This is an innocent man. And he's suffering in, a, in an almost unimaginable way. Are you not appalled by this? Are you not outraged by this? Certainly until you remember why this was happening. Certainly until you remember what was happening at the cross. See, what is the very next line? What does Isaiah remind you about? He said, it was all for the transgression of my people. Don't you see all of this was happening for you? It was happening for you. And I would ask you, friends, as a congregation, to give that some very real consideration tonight that all of this that we are talking about, all of, of this pain that Isaiah is pointing us to and all of the anguish and all of the injustice, it was being endured and it was being endured for you and for me. See, this man was innocent. He was innocent. But who in the eyes of God was the guilty party? It was you 
And it was me who should have borne the curse of Almighty God. Don't you look at Isaiah 53? Don't you think about the cross before us? And don't you marvel at the great, great love we see at Calvary? So we see silence. He was silent and our salvation is secure. There was great suffering and it was suffering for you and for me. But we end with a third thing. We end here with the sinlessness of the servant. The sinlessness. Many years ago, (laughs) my dad, in a bid to try and educate his children, (laughs) uh, what he did was he sat my brother and myself down when we were little boys, and he tried to get us to learn some poetry. Uh, he sat us down and he tried to get us to memorize, I think it was, uh, some Alfred Lord Tennyson poems. You know? But here's the thing, my dad should have realized, poetry's not all that attractive to little boys who really just want to go out and play football and climb trees. And so my poor old man was really ultimately wasting his time and we didn't memorize these poems at all. Now, whether we like poetry or not, I'm guessing that when we look at this song tonight, every one of us, if we're taking this seriously, we can appreciate the, 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 the beauty of this song. Can't we? I mean, it's, it's just so, it's, it's so symmetrical for a start. You know, there's five stanzas. You notice that when Paul's reading it out? There's five stanzas. And they're, remember we said this last time, they're each, they're equal length of stanzas. Each of these has sort of three verses. It's all beautiful. And see the stanzas, they kind of dovetail, or they're certain, certainly there's, they're interwoven. You see it even with the imagery, do you not? Last time, it was we who were like sheep, weren't we, who had gone astray. And then the imagery is woven into the next stanza because now it is the suffering servant who is like a sheep for different reasons because he is silent before his shears. Really though, it is the connections within our present stanza that I want you to see. So have a look at verse 7 and you tell me how it begins. What is the imagery at the beginning of verse 7? The second line of verse 7. What is it? What part of the body is it that's focused on? Speaks of the mouth of the suffering servant. So you've got that at the start. There's this image of the mouth. Look at the end. Look at verse 9. What's the image? You see? He returns to the same imagery. So there's this inclusio in the stanza, and it's the inclusio of the same image. It's the image of the mouth. Now, the image is the same. The message, however, is not. At the beginning, what was lacking from the suffering servant's mouth? Speech. It's a lack of speech. He was silent. At the end... Uh, verse 9, what is it that is lacking? You see? It is a lack of deceit. And friends, do you see what is being said there by Isaiah of your Savior? It is not just 
that your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a man who does not lie. That's not what it is. It's deeper than that. See, in Scripture, the idea of lacking deceit, it means to be entirely free from a wicked heart. That's your Savior. One who is entirely free from wickedness. One who is entirely free from wicked or evil motives at all. And in fact, then look to see what precedes that. The suffering Savior was also without violence as well. Do you see it? Internally, externally, who is our Savior? He is one completely guiltless. But he is one completely free from any sin at all. And doesn't that make what is said about his burial here all the more powerful? This is how we're going to end with this. Let me read what is said. Look at verse 9 of the burial of the suffering servant. It says, Isaiah declares, he was assigned a grave with whom? With the wicked, next bit, and with the rich in his death. What do you make of that? He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. I'm serious. What do you, what, what do you make of that? I remember reading this uh, in a cold classroom in Edinburgh many years ago in seminary. Part of the Hebrew exercise and I was bored and I didn't want to be there. And I was cold and I was tired. And you go in and read this and it blew my mind. Because I saw for the first time, I'm sure what you already know, that the rich there is a singular word. It's a singular word. Do you see it? Isaiah is saying, this Savior, this one to come, he will be assigned a grave alongside the wicked. But what will happen? He will be with one rich man in his death. Now, imagine being amongst Isaiah's initial hearers and listeners to that prophecy. They wouldn't have a clue what he's talking about. Right? I mean, what's this Isaiah? Uh, There's a saviour going to come and he's going to be a criminal and he's going to be assigned a a grave with criminals but there's going to be a rich man involved in this. They're going to be scratching their heads. They're not going to have a clue what's going on. But not you. You see it, don't you? You know what's happening here. You know that though the Lord Jesus Christ was indeed executed as a criminal, and that the authorities intended to bury him as such what happened, the Lord caused one rich man to intervene, Joseph of Arimathea, that he would request our Lord's body and he would have it buried in his own tomb. Do you see it? The Lord, our God, by his providence, he ensures the suffering servant was with a rich man in his death. And I ask you this, is that not just the most beautiful picture of the love the father must have? son. I mean, doesn't it show you the delight 
that the Father must have taken in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? That he would not permit him to suffer any unnecessary dishonor. That having fulfilled perfectly the work of atonement, that the Father ensured some earthly honor for Jesus, that he would be buried in this way. And doesn't it even give you a glimpse of the honor that Jesus was very soon to receive? He has completed the atonement in entirety. So what now? Let us have him buried in a rich man's grave. Why? Because in a matter of days, he will be risen to the riches of resurrection life. Let me end with two very brief applications. One, this, although it is hard to take, this is an example for you and your life. See, we know some of you are studying this in your house groups. We know that these very verses here, they are quoted in the New Testament book of First Peter. These very verses. Peter speaks of these. And what does he say about them? He says, this stuff, the pain, the suffering servant, the, the anguish, the injustice, Christ did this. He suffered for us. What does Peter say? Leaving us an example. Do you see what he's saying? That as the followers of Jesus Christ, not only should you and I expect this sort of treatment, this sort of treatment, we should expect this sort of pain and mistreatment and and attack and, and this sort of injustice if we are living for Jesus appropriately. Not only is that true, But we should also view these things when they happen in the way that Jesus viewed them as part of the great and perfect plan that God has for our lives. This is an example, Christ, an example for us. But I said two applications. So this very simple question for you, and I promise this is it, we end here. Do you believe in the suffering servant? Do you believe in the suffering servant? You have been shown tonight by Almighty God in Isaiah chapter 53, the one who was willing to be punished physically, mentally, and spiritually to win salvation for his people. He is before you. That truth is there before you. Do you believe in him? Do you? If so, if the answer tonight is yes, you better believe it. I believe in Jesus Christ. Then surely what we must do is end this Lord's day praising him. Isn't that right? Isn't that what we do just now? That we thank the Lord Jesus Christ for all that he has endured and endured to set you free. To set you free from your sin. Let's pray.